Now, <clears throat> summer jobs are usually memorable. Now, those who've had them as teenagers, they remember pretty well those jobs, especially if they represent your first foray into what we might call serious employment. Uh, one which I'll never forget, and I've mentioned before, was uh, digging up holly trees for resale. That was one of my first summer jobs. It was uh, for an elderly, no-nonsense lawyer who paid fair, but modestly, for the work and uh, offered no amenities like water and things like that. Now, you all know that with holly trees, what they're like, they tend to be inflexible and somewhat lethal. And uh, you add to that a warm, humid, and I'm speaking of southern New Jersey humidity, where even thinking makes you sweat, and you have yourself a real job, a real summer job. But holly trees have another uh, delightful feature that makes digging them up for sale and replanting so much fun. They have what is called a taproot. And this taproot burrows straight down from the trunk into the ground. And it goes deeply into the ground, and it's the main root of the tree. And all the other roots grow off of that. So when you're digging it up for replanting, you can't cut that taproot off. You have to go all the way down and get underneath of that taproot. And so you can't successfully really transplant a holly tree without extracting that root. So you have to start wide and dig deep in order to get that out. And you can sever some of the side roots, but the life of the tree depends on that central, deeply penetrating root that gives life to everything else. John sets before you here in 1 John chapter 5 the taproot of the Christian faith, the thing that provides life to every other aspect and it is your faith. Your faith is the taproot. That, that through that, all the other things work their way into your life. Your faith in the reality that Jesus is truly that Christ, that one who was sent by the Father to be the payment or the sacrifice or the propitiation for your sins and who is now, by that faith, your beloved prophet, priest, and king. It's your faith in that. that that's who Christ is, and that's who Christ is to you, that really forms the taproot of your Christian life. And if you're in possession of this faith, it's the gift of God. It is the taproot of all other graces in you. And it comes to you from God himself. And that's what John says here in this first verse of chapter 5. Calvin says that John emphasizes here that it is the gift of God because this faith is far above the reach of the human mind. 
And he goes on to say, we must be drawn to Christ by our Heavenly Father. For not any of us can ascend to him by his own strength. John says elsewhere, this is in his gospel, in John chapter 1 and verse 12, John says this, To all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So coming into that place of being the child of God was a result of the will of God and the gift of God to you who believe. Jesus says, and this is in the Gospel of John chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus said there, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. But no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws that one to me. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So we have this understanding of of all those hours in God, this understanding of our faith and what it means to be a believer and the blessings that come from it by the Spirit in us because of the faith that God has given us. Now, it is this faith which is the gift of God that supplies, like the tree's taproot, vitality to everything else in the believer's life and you can see that john is building on that truth here in first john chapter five i'm just going to look again at the first five verses and look and see how this is going he says in verse one everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god so there's the idea of the gift from god And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And I think you can easily see here, if you look at those five verses, you can see the concept as it's penned here by John. He starts the verse at verse 1 by saying, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And he ends this section by asking, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He starts with, this is the gift of God, and the gift of God is to believe and have this faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And then at the end of the section he says, and who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that. The one whose life is, is, is throbbing out of and coming from the strength of that faith. And it's that gift of belief that Jesus is the Christ 
which comes from God, that equips and supplies the believer to overcome the world. But let's look at how John gets there with this. If you look at verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So, first of all, you have the spirit-born affection. And John says here, if you love God, you love his children. If you love God, you love his children. And he speaks here of a very natural thing. Believers are born of God, and if anyone claims to love God, then he or she will love whoever is born of him. And this is such a natural thing, it might help to think of it in another context. You think of brothers and sisters and the affections that they have for one another. This is what he's referring to here, this relationship between brothers and sisters, but one that is sanctified or that is rendered holy, unique, and special by the fact that the relationship is one born of faith and ultimately love to God himself because it involves a joint share in the gift of God. Uh, and because of that, it takes on a deeper and broader dimension. Let me ex- maybe illustrate it this way, and we'll make, maybe make clearer what I'm trying to say here. You have two brothers whose mother has gone home to be with the Lord. They're two brothers, but their mother's no longer with them. And those two brothers are quarreling. And they're at bitter odds with one another. And someone comes along and looks at their faces all contorted with anger and their bite, hears their biting comments. And they look at them and they say, what would your mother say if she saw you two treating each other like this? What would your mother say if she saw you doing this? And all things being equal, what usually happens, and I realize not always, but for the sake of illustration, this is what usually happens. The brothers hang their heads in shame. They apologize to each other. And they make peace. The birth connection, the reality of both being loved in that unique and special way, Uh, that a mother loves them carries with it a compelling force but the main argument is if you love your mother you'll love each other that's the argument isn't it in that statement if you love your mother if you truly love her if you truly want to honor her you will love each other and you multiply that You lift it up out of the context of a a sentimental attachment and refine it as a love born of the Holy Spirit in the believer. 
And you can easily see what John is referring to here when he says, if you love God, you love each other. What else can you do? It's just natural that you do so. And when you're not in that spirit of love towards one another, well, then what would your father think? What does your father think of that attitude? Now, you compare this with what Peter says about Jesus. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And he says of Jesus, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Same thing John was saying, right? This is the gift of God, this faith that you have, this belief in God. So through Christ you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, or exercising faith, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Well, here's the force of it. You are you have the same father. You are born by the same means. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you have this compelling call to love one another and to do it fervently. He or she that loves his or her father in heaven loves all his children because they are his or her brethren by the same parent of the same blood of the same birth and of the same nature as Peter puts it. And we sing about that in the church's one foundation. John Cotton an American colonial preacher says that if we hate those who hate God, as David claimed to do, and it speaks of our integrity, if we love those whom God loves, it speaks of our sincerity. If we hate those who hate God, and that speaks of our integrity, then if we love those who love God, doesn't that speak of the sincerity of our faith? In 1 John chapter 4, and verse 20, you might remember this when we were going through it. John says there, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Now we go on to verse 2. And here in verse 2 we read, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, verse 3 says. Now, remember, as John is writing here, he's being inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said of that spirit that he would come to his apostles and that he would speak of him, that is, of Jesus. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus says that. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
And in chapter 15, Jesus says this in verse 26, But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then in chapter 16, Jesus says this in verses 13 and 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, having that truth in mind, that that's the Holy Spirit's work, and that he's working through John and inspiring him with these words, and now these words are coming to you, having that in mind, that is essential to getting the full force of what John is saying here. Because it's best understood in the context of what Jesus has said and taught. You'll remember, perhaps, that Jesus, when asked about the law of God, said this. And this is Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36. He's asked, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now later, the Savior says this. And this is John 15, beginning of verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you have my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, coming back to 1 John, look again at verse 2. And remember that John is being led by the Spirit, and he remembers these words, and he writes what you have here in the second verse. And he says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And when you read that, it probably isn't the easiest thing, probably not the easiest way to say this. But the point is this. You truly love the children of God when you do so out of love to God and in accord with his revealed will. And it's sort of turning it around the opposite way. We, we normally look at this and say, well, how do we know you love God? Because you love his children. But this time, John says, how do you know you love his children? Because you love God and obey his commandments. You see how it's turned around the other way? Is that clear? I mean, can you, can you see that? That's, that's just turned around. And that's because he's going at the root source. 
When your love for God is the taproot out of which your love for others grows, your love and your faith in God, when that's the taproot out of which your love for others grows, then you know you are loving as he commands. When we show love to each other, not just because it's the law, not just because it's the law of the one we love, but because we love him, then we can be sure that we're truly loving the children of God. And while this applies on a grand scale and applies to the whole body of Christ and and to us here as we gather as a body of believers, even though it applies to our enemies and those who persecute us, it shouldn't be forgotten that it's also true in the most intimate and personal relationships that we have. You children, for example, You're commanded to love and to obey your parents. But not just for the relationship's sake, and not just because God has commanded that you should, though those are valid reasons and important. But you are to love and obey them first and foremost because you love God. That's what has to be at the heart of it because of your faith in God and your love for him on the grounds of that faith. So you're not just doing it because you have to. You're not just doing it because it's been commanded of you. You're do- not just because your parents are requiring it of you, but because you have a real, earnest, true love for God. And if you love him, you will love them and you will honor them and you will respect them. And that's what John is bringing forth here. You couples, the same thing is true for you. You are commanded to love one another faithfully. But not just because you promised to do so on your wedding day. But because it is the will of God. And becomes a joy because you love him. You're only loving your spouse properly when you are loving him or her because you love God. It's the only time it's actually happening as it ought to happen. It's the only time in those spirits of affection and love and and deference to one another take on their their greatest beauty and and their most pure sincerity is when you're doing that because you love him. And that's what John is saying here. I hope you can see it. You know you are loving others if you love God. You know that because by loving as God calls for, because you love him, it then manifests itself in your life and it spreads out from there. And it doesn't matter I mean, it's not just a matter of our duty to a spouse. It's a matter of our affection to God. It doesn't rest on how we feel at any moment, but on what he wills and what he commands and what he requires by his love, because by faith I believe 
and I am confirmed in this in my heart, that he is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And because I'm committed to him in that way, by faith, then my love emanates from my love for him. And it finds its source there, its humility there, its earnestness there. No matter what relationship the Christian may be engaged in, on any level, in the home, at work, at church, in service or in competition, you're only loving others properly when you're doing it in and for the love of God first. We can't hear these words of Jesus too often. In John chapter 15 and verse 10, we read it a moment ago, but listen to it again in this context. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. One of the commandments was to love you to death. To love you to death. That's what Jesus was asked to do by the Father. And he says, you can see I kept the commandments of my Father and that I abide in his love because I loved the elect to my death. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, I would just say in general here, as we think about this call to love one another, because we love God, first of all, to beware how you view the son or the daughter of the king. That's a part of this. I'm to love my brother or my sister in Christ. Wife, daughter, friend, whatever, I'm to love them in Christ if we're in Christ together. And I'm to view them as the daughter of the king. Whatever their age, whatever my relationship to them, I'm first and foremost to regard them as a daughter of the king. And you women, it's the other way for you. You are to regard your brothers and sisters in Christ as the sons of the king. And to love them in that way. Second thing to beware is the deceptiveness of the heart. Because the heart can even be deceiving in matters of love. And it can very easily make self-love and false love seem to be true love. And that's why it's so important that this love for each other begins at that taproot, at our faith, at the character of our faith. Because that's what tends to straighten out and clarify uh, those things that that they're just a matter of self-love or even false love. I want you to think about David. What happened first? David lost his love for God 
first. And then when he lost the heart and the spirit, and I'm not talking about totally lost it, but he was no longer serving God from his heart. He was no longer seeking to, 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 to act, right, in a way that showed love to God. And so then he showed no love to Bathsheba by drawing her into adultery with him and the shame of that. And you saw where it went next, right? He certainly had no love for Uriah because he orchestrated his murder. And do you see how it began with he stopped loving God? Stopped loving God and keeping the commandments of the Lord because he loved him. And then the progress went from there or down from there. As Calvin says, the love of God then is not idle and inactive, but it brings us forward. Now, we double back. You believers were gifted with faith by God. The faith that is confirmed in the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, who was sent by the Father to be your prophet, your priest, and your king. And he says, then in verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, very quickly here, in the minds of many, isn't it just the opposite? Oh, the commandments of God. Oh, what a burden that is. It's just going to be a gigantic list of things we can't do, things we can't say, things we're not allowed to do or have a part in. What John says here, and the way he says it, is important. Because most men and women believe that just the opposite is true. He says that the commandments are not heavy, they're not wearisome or burdensome, but despite the contention of men, the commandments of the Lord aren't designed to weigh us down, but to liberate men and women, to liberate them from the old man. And the old man doesn't see it that way. And unless we draw our strength and obedience from that taproot of our faith, we won't see it that way. We'll be tempted to see love itself as a burden. Calvin, after pointing out that John is only referring to the believer here, says this. The law is said to be easy as far as we're endued with heavenly power and overcome the lusts of the flesh. For however the flesh may resist, yet the faithful find that there is no real enjoyment except in following God. And the great truth is that the commandments of the Lord are not just liberating, they are exceedingly profitable. In Isaiah 45, verse 17, the Lord says, Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. I'm just going to touch on verses 4 and 5 in conclusion. And Lord willing, we'll come back to this next week. But see what he says in verse 4. For everyone or thing who or which has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The whole world is opposed to the revealed will of God, the law of God. And as Calvin says, uh, hinders us from going where God calls us. It's opposed to loving God. And it's in love with itself, the world. It pretends love toward others, but it's, lo- it's a love that grows from a sour root, one that tends to be mercenary and selfish at its core. Calvin says the term world here has a wide meaning, for it includes whatever is adverse to the spirit of God. Thus the corruption of our nature is a part of the world. All lusts, all the crafts of Satan, in short, whatever leads us away from God. But, beloved, the love that springs from the taproot of faith, that hears the word of the true prophet, that trusts in the intercession of the great high priest, that loves and serves the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, stops its ears against the false prophets, rests in Christ's atoning grace, and surrenders to the king and does not allow the passions or fashion to rule his or her heart. Because it was taken up by us long ago, you might have forgotten this, but, or maybe just never put it together. But why is John writing these things? Do you remember what he said? It's in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's a sense here, beloved, in which absolutely nothing has changed. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, we read this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Isn't that exactly what John said? It's the same thing he's saying. But it has this difference. Because you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that he did pay the price for your sins. And thus liberated you from the curse of the law. Now we look to obey with an evangelistic spirit and zeal. We're freed from trying to overcome the world and justify ourselves by our own obedience. Our motive now is born out of our faith. It's born out of our love for God. And this, beloved, is the faith that overcomes the world. It overcomes the world in us. It overcomes the world around us. And here's the Savior's promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and this is the word overcomes, same word in 1 John 5, 5, 4 and 5. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. 
To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who overcomes and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To the one who overcomes, he will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. And lastly, the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We overcome by faith, and it's faith that overcomes the world. And next week we'll talk about how that works in the context of all the things we talked about this morning and in others as well, by God's grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us more and more what it is to love you so that, Lord, we might love each other and know that we love each other. Not because of our feelings and not because of what emotion might fill us in a moment, but because we are obeying your command. We are deciding and determining to love each other even as we have been loved. Whether it's in our homes here in our church, or even out in the world. Father, please grant us this grace by your grace. And Father, we pray that uh, if there may be those who hear this and they've been the objects of not the love, but the scorn of God's people, we pray, Lord, that they would uh, see that it's not you that they are loving, but themselves. And, Lord, that they would look instead to those who have come short uh, before them, to you, and see your love for them. And then, Lord, return that scorn with the spirit of love that's born of faith. Father, we ask you to be with us in these matters. Glorify yourself in them. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.